the DC Debrief for Friday, June 2nd, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolnes, and here's what we've got coming up for you this week. Avoiding default. The debt ceiling deal agreed to by Speaker McCarthy and the White House passes the Senate heading off a default. I'm going to talk to CBN News Capitol Hill correspondent Matt Galka about that in a few minutes. We'll go over the bill and figure out what's in it and what does it mean for you. Plus, conservatives going after the director of the FBI New rules aimed at improving road safety, and the Republican presidential field is about to grow even bigger. Lots to get to here on this second episode of the DC Debrief. And for those of you who did get a chance to listen to episode one, just a reminder of what it is we're going to be doing here on the podcast. We're going to start things off with the debrief. I'm going to give you all of the latest news and information, the stuff that you need to know about the last week in Washington, D.C., and then we're going to take a deep dive into some aspect of that information or focus on something maybe even totally different. But on this episode of the podcast, we're going to look a little bit more closely at that debt ceiling deal and get past all the intrigue get the palace stuff and really get down to uh, the stuff that's important for you, the stuff that could affect you in your daily life. All right. But first, here's the debrief. As I mentioned, the debt ceiling has passed Congress sooner than we expected. One day after passage in the House, the Senate last night passed the compromise agreement 63 to 36, getting the 60 votes it needed to pass to make it official. The Senate, in an impressive display of discipline, voted on 11 amendments and did it in under, I think, averaging under 10 minutes for each of those different votes. And Lawmakers didn't deliver big speeches ahead of those amendment votes. They simply said, here's my amendment and let's vote. So it seemed like no one wanted to stay throughout the weekend to vote on this. And it's definitely going to clear in time for the president to sign this bill. That's likely going to come later today with an official signing, perhaps at the beginning of next week. But in in enough time ahead of that June 5th drop dead date. Um, This comes a day after threats from the most conservative members of the House, the Freedom Caucus. Um, threatening to to blow up the bill, but Speaker McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy got his debt ceiling victory with the House passing the legislation by a wide margin, with more Democrats voting for the bill than Republicans. Speaker McCarthy on that. This is fabulous. This is one of the best nights I've ever been here. I thought it would be hard. I thought it'd be almost impossible just to get to 218. Now I found there's a whole new day here. We've woken them up. In response also, McCarthy says that he is going to create a commission to look at the entire budget and that the commission will be bipartisan. So uh, this isn't the last we'll hear of Republicans going after spending cuts in the federal budget. But for now, the default has been has been put to the side. And of course, we're going to talk to Matt Galka about that more in just a couple of minutes. Number two, FBI Director Christopher Ray charged with contempt of Congress. Republican House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer charging him with contempt for not providing his committee with unclassified documents related to their investigation into President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and the Biden family. The documents that Comer and other Republicans on the committee say they want describes an alleged criminal scheme avoiding then-Vice President Biden and a foreign national. Comer said the FBI's decision to stiff-arm Congress and hide this information from the American people is obstructionist and unacceptable. On Wednesday, FBI Director Ray offered to let House Oversight Chair Comer view an internal law enforcement document at FBI headquarters that the GOP believes will shed light on those allegations, allegations that 
many conservative commentators on TV have challenged Comer on, and Comer has not really been able to say much or give much proof about them. So a lot of these allegations still up in the air, but um, a lot of Republicans, a lot of conservatives firmly believe that Hunter Biden and potentially Vice President Biden may have engaged in some kind of pay for play with foreign nationals during the time he was vice president. And that is what this um, that is what this request for these documents is all about. Comer said that this concession by FBI Director Ray may not be enough to eliminate, to have those charges of contempt of Congress rescinded and that nothing other than full compliance can help Ray avoid that contempt charge. So that will be playing out over the next couple of weeks as Republicans on the House Oversight Committee continue their investigation into the Biden family and Hunter Biden himself. Number three, Supreme Court decisions. Not a lot of needle movers this week at the Supreme Court, but on Thursday, uh, they did release one decision that was of note and we wanted to pass along to you. And that involved a concrete company in Washington state. They wanted to resuscitate a lawsuit that they filed against uh, a union, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, alleging that a strike that the union uh, went on uh, back in 2017 hurt their business. And uh, this was a this was almost a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court. It was an eight to one vote. Justice Amy Coney Barrett wrote the decision saying that Glacier Northwest can pursue the lawsuit that they filed in state court over an August 2017 strike in which drivers walked off the job, leaving wet concrete in the trucks. Barrett wrote that the state court was wrong to dismiss the claims at such an early stage in the process. And it also said because the union took affirmative steps to endanger Glacier's property rather than reasonable precautions to mitigate that risk, the National Labor Relations Act does not protect its conduct. Uh, Liberal Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson was the lone dissenter saying that the ruling, quote, risks erosion of the right to strike. So a potentially important ruling there by the Supreme Court this week. Number four, the U.S. Department of Transportation announces a new rule that will require automatic emergency braking in all new light and heavy duty vehicles. Polly Trottenberg, Deputy Secretary of Transportation, made the announcement at a news conference this week. If a driver is driving at 20 miles per hour and they have a collision and hit a pedestrian, all things being equal, hopefully the pedestrian will survive. At twice that speed, chances are the pedestrian will not survive. So AEB systems are going to be critical to reducing the harm of people outside the vehicle, inside the vehicle, reduce fatalities, injuries, and of course, damage. We also hope this will help many crashes be avoided altogether. Industry analysts have noted that uh, car companies have been implementing this on their own in recent years, and um, it's already been this, this this is already in place for for larger vehicles. But uh, it's now going to be standard on every car that you buy, and it's designed to help pedestrians from getting hurt, as you as as you heard um, uh, Trottenberg say, and um, it's designed to help avoid serious collisions and reduce the number of deaths on the road. Uh, and certainly that would be welcome for sure. Number five, the Senate Help Committee had a hearing on the child care crisis in America on Wednesday entitled Solving the Child Care Crisis, Meeting the Needs of Working Families and Child Care Workers. Um, this is a growing issue in America. The number of child care workers is dwindling. There is a major shortage. It's a big problem for, for, for two-income families, parents who need to send their children to daycare. And uh, it's become a little bit of a political football, as you'll hear from a couple of uh, cuts from the uh, chairman of the committee, Democrat Bernie Sanders, and then the ranking chairman, Bill Cassidy, a Republican. Bernie Sanders, of course, 
wants government funding. A lot, a lot more money to go towards uh, the, the the regional and some of the some of the state and even some of the the, the national organizations that are trying to provide childcare for parents. And, and uh, Senator Sanders said the government and America is not doing right by parents and kids by not providing them with that funding. We talk about our love for children. The future of America is our children, but we don't put that into effect when we pay childcare workers twelve dollars an hour. When we charge parents rates that are unaffordable, when we don't have enough slots available for working families. Of course, Senator Cassidy argues that there's already a lot of money going towards these organizations, and there seems to be not a lot of accountability for how the money is getting spent, whether it's actually going to care for children, whether it's actually going to educate young children. They they need to find more information about where the money that they're currently paying is going before spending any more money on these institutions. We could say, oh my gosh, let's spend a whole lot more money. There's a crisis. Oh, we've got to do something. It's very emotional, but we don't know how the money is. There's $18 billion out there. And we don't know how we don't know how the money that has been spent has been spent. What most experts are saying is is really needed is more information where there are daycare deserts with par- parts of the country where there are just not enough workers for the for the demand out there. But it's also unclear exactly how bit how much of a demand there is. And it fluctuates wildly in, in different places. And so this hearing focused a lot on cost. Senator Sanders said childcare often costs more than $15,000 per year. And one of the witnesses, National Association for Education of Young Children, Managing Director Lauren Hogan, said families cannot afford it. But Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen said that there are too many regulations that are getting in the way in order to establish childcare facilities. And he's calling for the federal government to stay out of it. He says it makes it almost cost prohibitive. And so in order to really fix costs that the their panel, their, their, their committee should start looking at what they're doing and seeing if there's another way to soften the amount of regulations and still keep kids safe. But everybody on the on the on the committee basically agreed that child care costs are through the roof and they need to get a hold on those costs in order to really get a start at fixing this problem. So a complicated issue that does not seem to have any easy answers, but uh, was an important hearing on Capitol Hill this week. Number six, the Republican majority in the House is about to get even smaller as GOP Representative Chris Stewart of Utah plans to resign from the House as early as this week. He's a six-term congressman who won his last election by more than 30 points, but he is stepping down due to his wife's health issues. And so that would narrow the already slim five-member GOP majority in the House, and take it down to four before a special election uh, can be held in his district. Now, uh, a Republican is going to replace him. It's a it's a very strong Republican district, but Utah law states that the governor has to call for a special election in the event of a House vacancy. And so once Stewart makes his resignation official, uh, Governor Cox will then have seven days to set the time for a primary and a special election. So in the meantime, until that special election happens, House Speaker McCarthy will have even less room for error when whipping votes. And assuming united Democratic opposition, McCarthy can only afford to lose three Republican votes on any given legislation once uh, Congressman Stewart has left uh, has left Washington. And also, we would be remiss to not hope and pray for a speedy recovery for his wife um, with whatever she is dealing with. Uh, And the last thing that we're going to debrief you on, 
Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is expected to announce his candidacy for the Republican nomination for president in 2024 next week, Tuesday, June 6th, via a town hall at San Anselm College uh, in New Hampshire. Former Vice President Mike Pence is expected to announce his intention to run the following day, Wednesday, June 7th, in Des Moines, Iowa. And another candidate is said to be getting throwing his hat into the ring. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum planning to enter the 2024 presidential race. He plans to run as a traditional conservative on low taxes, strong on national defense. So now, after these three declare, the field will consist of Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson, Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, and Doug Burgum. And so there it is. That's the first debrief uh, we've got for you here on this podcast, the main stories that you need to know from the week in Washington. And now we're going to take a deeper dive into the inner workings of the debt ceiling negotiations and the legislation, all the back and forth that we saw take place among members of Congress this week. Joining me to break it all down is our fantastic Capitol Hill correspondent, Matt Galka. Matt, thanks for coming on the D.C. Debrief. How are you? John, great to be here, as always. Love talking to you. It's great talking to you too, buddy. And um, nobody I'd rather talk to about this because it really is kind of amazing where we started from to, to where we are now. There, there was so much vehement... Um, uh, opposition to this particular bill by conservatives in the House that I wasn't sure it was going to get past the the Rules Committee before it went to uh, before it even got onto the floor of the House. But somehow, Speaker McCarthy cajoled enough Republicans and he got enough Democratic support in order for the bill to sail through the House. It wasn't even that close of a vote. Can you just kind of take us through your sense of how this all went down in the House, Rep House of Representatives, specifically over the last, say, like 24 to 36 hours before they voted? Yeah, I think this this conversation starts with the ultimate ending, which was there will not be a default. I mean, I think you had enough people who... Well, certainly congressional leadership were of that mindset. Speaker McCarthy said that. The president said that. Uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate said that. Right. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader in the House. Uh, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate. They said there will not be a default. So I think that's where this conversation starts, which is at the ending. Because a default, uh, if you listen to the economists, the experts, and if you already look at the, the market's uh, nervousness heading to a potential default on the brink, a default would be catastrophic uh, for by by a lot of people's measures. Now, we, I mean, I guess there's still time to get there, but it doesn't look like we'll get there. So we won't see the ultimate result. But if you just look at what the economy is made up of right now, stubborn inflation, people paying more for the goods and services, and nobody wants to do that. And then you add in an economic default where veterans aren't getting benefits, potentially. People aren't getting their Social Security checks. Uh, the market's fluctuating all over the place because they don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. You add in all of that to a fragile economy crushed by higher prices, it would not have been good. Now, we get to the substance of the bill after that, where you have people on both sides that are not thrilled with a lot of things in that bill. And that's valid. And that's fair. No matter where you stand on the right or the left, that's fair. But 
you go to the ending of the worst case scenario crippling economic catastrophe. And I think that's how you get to the end result of we're not going to let that happen. We can work out the other stuff. We still have two more years or, or, you know, a year and a half of this Congress. We'll work that out. But we don't want that end result to happen. And I think ultimately that's why you saw enough people on both sides. And it became overwhelmingly bipartisan in in the House in the end. Um, That's why you had enough people saying, look, we're not going to let that happen. Not proud of everything. We're not happy about everything. But we're not going to let that happen. And I think when you're Speaker McCarthy, that's how you get people on board. What you just described sounds a lot like something we don't see much in Washington, D.C. anymore. It's the C word, and I, I want to I want to brace everyone for it. Compromise. Right. This is what the moderates on both sides were saying that this was and what Speaker McCarthy was saying, what the president has been saying. This was a compromise deal that was reached in a Congress with, uh, with that is split between Republicans and Democrats, a divided Congress. This is this is kind of what that looks like. And and a compromise, you know, the, the adage is that if, you, if it's a true compromise, you're going to anger people on both sides. No one's going to be happy. Everybody's going to kind of be a little bit unhappy with the bill. And I think on the right, you have the Freedom Caucus, who before the vote was screaming about this and saying that they would do everything they could from from getting it to pass. At the end of the day, uh, they were not able to do much about it. And then you had some of them on the far left, very upset about some of the uh, the work requirements for for food assistance and some of the other things that that they were upset with. So, But at the end of the day, it was a compromise, which I think is, is an endangered species in, in Washington, D.C. I'm glad you brought that up, because when I was covering, uh, again, more concerns from the Freedom Caucus this week about how the bill um, McCarthy's getting rolled. The bill isn't doing enough. And again, that's valid if if, if your hard line is reducing the deficit and reducing spending. Uh, then what the House passed uh, earlier in the year, um, their bill uh, they had measured would would save more money over their over earlier the, debt limit bill that raised yeah, the debt limit. Yeah, which had all Republican support. Uh, you know, it was a party line vote, um, which many said it was just a starter start the conversation negotiating point. Um, again, if you're going to compare that bill to what they got, yes, they are right. It's not doing enough uh, from from that original bill. It's not what they wanted. Uh, but, but as I was covering it, and you mentioned the word compromise, that's what I thought, which is, this is a, you know, when I, when you hear Congressman Chip Roy from Texas saying, no, Republicans should vote for this, this is a bad bill. And then you have other Republicans, maybe some surprising names too, who were standing up for the bill. And, you know, I'll, I'll throw Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene there, who who backed McCarthy. They've been backing McCarthy since his uh, speaker battle. Um, they're standing up for the bill. When I'm when I'm thinking about this and you have two polarizing opposite sides about the thought process about this bill um, and you and you and maybe you look on Twitter and you see the chatter on Twitter from people saying the American people lost. And, and you know, you, you have uh, former President Trump at one point saying they should go to default. The, the thing I'm thinking of is, well, a lot of people would argue True compromise is what the government's here for. I mean, if you have a, a, a representative democracy here, um, then yeah, you're never going to get everything you want if you if you have slim margins, but you have the both sides working together. And and a lot of people would argue that's what the government's here to do. Is they're not uh, you're not going to get everything you want. You're not so in a lot of ways you're not supposed to. A lot of different people make up this country. So I, I had thought about that the whole time. Whereas, yeah, this is 
this is kind of the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you're you're supposed to you're supposed to come together with the other side um, on these major issues, on these major major issues that affect literally everybody. Uh, you, you know, th- this is the way it's supposed to work. So I, I I think it was interesting, and and to that point, and I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but to that point, th- there's a lot of grandstanding and everything on Capitol Hill. There is, you know, that's just a fact. That's just the price of doing business on Capitol Hill. But when the bill passes, you are afforded the cover of being able to say things like this was a bad bill. And because, you know, it's not going to affect the people now, you know, I mean, so you can dig in and you can make your case. And, and, and that's now we're entering the theater-esque part where you have the speaker and the people who are backing it. Um, talking about how great it was and how great of a deal it was. And, and what, you know, we got this and we got this and we got this. And you have the people who are against it that know nobody's going to get hurt now by a default. And they can dig in and they say, it's a terrible deal. We shouldn't have done this, shouldn't have done this, but we're never going to, you know. We're... So now we enter the theatrical part um, yeah. where you're, you're going to hear a lot more. Uh, you're going to see a lot more grandstanding, I think, now that, that it, it has been settled. I think one of the other interesting aspects of this and uh... – Folks on the on the far right, the Freedom Caucus members and others who agreed with them that there weren't enough spending cuts in this bill. And if the goal with this particular exercise was to make drastic cuts to and and, and bring down the debt, they are correct. This bill doesn't really do that. But as you mentioned, it was a um, cost benefit. What, what is more important to you, avoiding default or getting these cuts? And, and Republicans just had different opinions on what was more important to them and feeling what may have been the the more egregious issue here. Um, but at the end of the day, I think Republicans scored a pretty big victory in a, a symbolic victory in that for the first time, they negotiated a spending cut deal tied to the debt ceiling. For months, the president had said there was no way he was going to lift the debt ceiling as and be, and have it be used as a bargaining chip, right? I mean, that it would be a standalone thing. It should be a standalone thing. It was Congress's job to do it. And in the end of the day, Republicans got him to come off of that and negotiate. And they may not have gotten all the things that they wanted, but I would think that Republicans have to point to that and say, we scored a huge victory there because it also sets up future debt ceiling debates. They, they can no longer now say that there's no precedent for this. This establishes the precedent that the precedent that the debt ceiling can be used to negotiate for spending cuts further down the road. Is that accurate? I think I think so. I, I think so. And I think um, you, you hear about America being, I think, one of only two countries really that has a debt ceiling. Um, and you you hear some advocacy, especially lately with this, that we should get, you know, do away with it because but what you just pointed out is, is many would argue, is the exact reason we have it, um, which is to look. It, you you have leverage. You can create leverage. You you can you can get some wins that you might not normally get in a in a divided Congress with very slim slim margins. Um, and and I I think what you're saying is y- yes, this this will now. It, it creates a precedent. It could create headaches in the future. I mean, this was a. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying it's going to be easier 
from yeah. this point on to to deal with the debt ceiling. I think this makes it more complicated. And I think I think for conservative Republicans who are against the bill, I think that's a silver lining that they can hold on to and that they can say, listen, we we can we this can be used now to to extract concessions. And I would imagine the Democrats in future years, if there's a, a Republican president in the White House, would would then feel free to do the same thing. Yeah. I th- and, and, and look at where we're at, you know, look, you know, 52, 48 Senate, um, what a five seat majority in the house. I mean, that that's any, any given election year or midterm that can flip the, the other way with the slim margins, the other way. Uh, and I guess, you know, you, you break it down like this. Is there a chance that there's ever a standalone bill in the house as it's made up right now that adds work requirements to welfare programs that's going to pass both chambers on just that singular issue. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Uh, the bill also rescinded some of the IRS funding, which has been a, a hard line for a lot of conservatives right now. Is there a chance that that happens on its own right now? Very slim chance. Very slim chance. Maybe in the budget negotiations, maybe again, you as you're doing the horse trading, maybe. But the, those issues right there, that's not going to happen I mean, it would take some flip flop of, of, of epic proportions uh, for those things to happen on their own. So I, I get when a lot of Republicans and even Democrats will say, you know, yeah, hey, we rolled them. We rolled them. Uh, I get when a lot of Republicans feel that way. But then there are. I guess when you're looking at the whole picture, there are wins in there. And I think there are wins in there for Democrats, too. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they're going to tout the fact that there's not going to be a default. Uh, yeah, that's great. But they also they also held fast and firm on Medicare and Social Security. You know, they right. they, they can tout that, too, as they go forward. Look, we you know, there aren't there aren't going to be any cuts there. So it's um, as we enter the spin zone on this, you, you there are <laughs> wins to be touted. There are definitely wins to be touted. But you just extract those things individually. They're not going to happen on their own. They're, they're just not, you know, and, and, and if you're a Republican who is in favor of work requirements, then, but you're not in favor of this bill overall because of the, the, the savings that it's not going to produce, you at least have that win. And I guarantee you at somewhere along the, the line, the people who are against this bill are at some point going to tout those work requirements uh, so it's going to be ultimately probably a, if it's not a win-win for them down the line, it's at least going to be a net neutral. And I think you'll take that. Everybody will take a neutral over a loss. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you take a tie when you need to, when you need to take right. a tie, even though nobody's happy, nobody's happy with a tie. Uh, one of the things that came about in this deal and some of the things that you just mentioned that would, you know, would, would never pass on it on their own are, are the, the, the reduction in the amount of money going to the IRS. And, and can you just talk a little bit more about that? Because, um, what essentially is happening here, Republicans wanted to strip some money from the internal revenue service in order to, what cut down on the number of audits that that we see? Just feeling like the agency is too bloated. Is that is that accurate? Look, I I think an easy platform to run on is we don't want the tax man to take more of your money. I, I you know like I don't think red blue independent nobody's lining up and saying yes please. <laughs> no, that's just for the average person that's not going to happen. So so when you know they. Conservatives really made the 87,000 IRS agents a, a big part of their platform as they took the majority. And 
Um, they passed a, a messaging bill that, uh, you know, that would strip the funding earlier this year. It was never going to pass the Senate. Um, so hiring those 87,000 agents over the next 10 years um, where they're saying, look, that's just to audit more people. They want to take more of your money. They want to, you know, that's an easy platform to run on. And they were able to get some of the funding that was going to go to the IRS. Um, you know, they were able to get some of that back. And that's, again, they've been running on that. That is a win for them. Now, if you're a Democrat who was pushing that, there's a lot of, I think, uh, holes in the argument that there was just going to be this army of IRS agents knocking at the door. It was supposed to be over 10 years. It's one of the oldest workforces in the federal government, and their technology is horribly, almost obscenely outdated. Uh, so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a hard thing to say, yes, we want to give the IRS more money to take more money, you know, for taxes. That's a hard thing to get behind. But if you're a Democrat, you were like, well, it wasn't just going to be to knock down, you know, John and Jane's door all the time. But again, it's really it's a really hard thing to back. So yeah. here we are. They got some of that money back. And if you're a Republican who has said the 87,000 agents and all of that, you can look and say, hey, look, you know, we got some of that money back. So uh, you're safe for now. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. right. Uh, yeah. it, so it's easy to point to that as, as again, another victory if because we've heard that throughout the whole midterm season and, you know, since the Republicans yeah. took the majority, the 87,000 agents. So now we got some of that money back. It's not going to be this army coming to get you. Well, I mean, we'll see how the rest of the funding goes, but they, yeah. they were able to, to wage a little bit of a battle here and, and, and get some of that money back. Another thing uh, that was a big negotiating point between, between the two sides was this energy permitting deal. Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the some of the things that uh, will that were a part of this energy permitting deal, uh, the this energy portion of this that was agreed to, and some of the things that were not agreed to that were on the table that you know could have maybe moved the needle in terms of uh, avoiding you know cities avoiding blackouts essentially. Well, I think you know in that energy, one of the things I read the big winner of the energy one is Joe Manchin. Uh, he's been pushing a pipeline for West Virginia. Um, where we want to become more energy independent uh, with natural gas and oil. And so one of the things in the deal is, is uh, uh, permitting for that pipeline. Uh, now, on the, in, the opposite of that, Joe Manchin, the most moderate Democrat of them all in, in the Senate. Um, and I say that knowing Kirsten Sinema is an independent now, so I can say <laughs> Joe Manchin's still a Democrat, the most moderate Democrat. Of, you know, that was, a, that was a win for him in West Virginia and Republicans who want to be energy independent, um, that in and of itself, that made Tim Kaine pretty mad uh, mm -hmm. from, from because part of that pipeline uh, is slated to go through some of Virginia, uh, the, the the neighbor. Uh, and Tim Kaine claims that he never you know, was consulted about this, never heard from the White House about this. So um, that that's the win. You know, that's that that's that's where you get the. Um, uh, that's where you get to win on energy. Uh, I, I I don't think permitting reform. That one again, another one of Mansion's big. You know, it, I don't think it went as as um, I don't think it went as broad as he wanted. Um, which again, you know, when you're trying to clear up red tape and you're trying to become energy independent, that could be that could be one of the snags there. But the big winner of the whole energy debate was Mansion, and mm -hmm. that gives him again leverage in a very slim 
Senate where Democrats have a very slim majority. And he's probably going to be in a dogfight if he runs for re-election uh, or when he runs for re-election uh, in West Virginia, probably going to be in a dogfight. So that gives him at least another thing to run on as, look, uh, you know, I, I work with the Republicans. We get this done. Uh, look what we did with the debt deal. Yeah. And, and one of the things that uh, did get stripped out of that um, was that there There was a proposal that some energy groups were hoping would pass that would have addressed electric transmission woes by uh, requiring some regions in the U.S. to have the capacity to transfer about 30 percent of their peak electricity demand between each other to prevent the kind of blackouts that we saw in Texas a few years ago when they were experiencing extreme heat. And those are the kinds of little things in these bills that, that tend to get overlooked. The student loan freeze is going to expire um, in, a, in a couple of months because uh, they're they're doing away with that as part of the agreement. So just these little things in, in this bill that that kind of add up. So, Matt, it's been really interesting watching this whole thing play out. I feel like we're living in a brave new world right now with the debt ceiling. It's going to be like this pretty much every time unless one party has control. Uh, and so we should just be all geared up for it. But this debt ceiling suspension lasts through the 2024 election. So at least it won't be in a, a political football I don't think, during the course of the election. But folks, make sure you're catching up on everything Matt Galka is doing for us by catching Faith Nation uh, every weeknight at 6 o'clock Eastern time. And you can see all of his reporting at cbnnews.com as well. Matt, thanks for coming on the DC Debrief. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. And um, I'm glad we didn't hit, hit our heads on this debt ceiling, John. No, you're right. In, indeed, we didn't. And uh, after, after our conversation, uh, once the Senate passed the bill, uh, the White House did release a statement. Uh, President Biden later today uh, will sign the agreement and will make a speech in which he will tout, no doubt, both chambers of Congress coming together and uh, passing this bill that avoids a default. Uh, in the statement, the president said senators from both parties voted to protect the hard-earned economic progress we have made and prevent a first-ever default by the United States. Together, they demonstrated once more that America is a nation that pays its bills and meets its obligations and always will be. I want to thank Leader Schumer and Leader McConnell for quickly passing the bill. So there you go. After all that drama, after all that hand-wringing, they get it done under the wire. The United States Senate and the House of Representatives passed the debt ceiling legislation, and we head into the weekend knowing that there will be no default on the debt. Some of that, that may be good news to some of, to many of you. That might not be good news to some of you. Certainly, this is not something that makes everybody happy, um, and we'll see what the ramifications are from this, from this bill and, uh, and what's inside of it uh, over the next uh, weeks, months, and probably years as well. And that's going to do it for this edition of the DC Debrief. Thank you all so much for joining me on this first real episode of the podcast. And please tell a friend about the Debrief as we strive to bring you all the news you need to know from the week that was in Washington and maybe get a little bit more thrown your way. Everyone have a great weekend and we'll talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief.